It's a blessing from above. You give us that next breath, that next heartbeat. Lord, help us to use that life that you give us to sing praise to you, to give you glory, to further your kingdom. Lord, help us as we worship you today that we would worship in spirit and in truth and that we would walk out of here with the rough edges chiseled off a little bit more today so that we would be a little bit more conformed to the image of Jesus as we face this lost and dying world this week. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I tell you what, that's, that's sort of a convicting song, isn't it? When you think about it, it's your breath in our lungs. How could we, how could we use it to tear down somebody? How could we use it to destroy something? It has to be used to glorify God. Amen? Because it's His that He put in our lungs in the first place. What, a, what an awesome thought. Hey, as we uh, worship today, I want you to uh, uh, take this uh, con- connection card and uh, fill that out, especially if you're maybe a first or second time guest with us. Uh, by the way, just praise the Lord. We've been having so many uh, visitors, first and second time guests, and, and we just praise the Lord for you. We do want to know who you are, and so we can send a letter, let you know a little bit more about our church. We won't bug you, but if you ask us, we'll bug you, and uh, we'll let you know more about our church. And um, and so on the back there, you can find out about joining, you can find out about baptism, about a relationship with Christ. And of course, everybody can uh, fill out a, a comment or a prayer request if you have one. So please, please do that. Take advantage of that card, and we'll collect those, and the staff will pray for those. Um, and then also, let's see, where were we on that? Oh, got a couple of special anniversaries, and we don't know if this couple can be here because uh, they he he had an, uh, an accident and hurt his uh, hurt his head, fell. Uh, Ron and Martha Young this Friday will celebrate their 65th wedding anniversary. Yeah. And so uh, pray, pray for Ron. As I said, he, he took a tumble, and I don't know the severity of that injury, but pray for his recovery. And then also in our church family, we've got uh, Richard and Alma Benefield. They're celebrating 62 last week. So praise the Lord. Well, all right, as the pastor continues to roll on about end times, we're going to sing about some end times uh, songs uh, now, matter. I think it, uh, remind me, Pastor. What's what's your sermon title? Something about distress. I, I didn't I didn't want to sing too much about distress because by the time he got up here, we'd be so depressed, you know. Uh, by the way, if you're older than me, uh, you you uh, you know the hee haw tune, right? Gloom, despair, and agony. We could all probably sing that, but we're not going to do that today. Okay, we're 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 gonna we're gonna sing about great times ahead uh, that the Lord is going to give us. Let's sing together. What a day, glorious day that will be. i 
service that every every time we meet for the foreseeable future we're going to just take a time to to pray and uh, a lot of you come from a tradition where uh, you you like to use this this stage or these front pews as like an altar area to to come and pray for a need specifically we're, we're praying for the world uh, we are in an unprecedented uh, you know pandemic that we've been dealing with for the last half year uh, for our nation uh, we are in some unrest and uh, uh, times that, that we haven't seen for a long time. And, and, of course, we're coming up on an election. And then, of course, uh, just for our lost friends and neighbors and relatives, um, you know, as, as we just said, praise God, he's coming for me. Well, he's not coming for them. Amen? And it's up to us to call them to salvation, to call them to the Savior. And so let, let's pray for those uh, lost folks that we know that God wants to use us to bring the gospel to them. So we're just going to have a time uh, of prayer. You can pray where you are. You, you can come use this altar. We'll just take two, three, four minutes, and then our pastor will, um, will c conclude that, okay?
with heads bowed and eyes closed as you're praying, listen to the word of the Lord. Romans 13, verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. Father, we're just reminded straight from the word, Lord, that we should be subject to governing authorities. And then we recall 1 Peter, where we are to continually pray for those who are in authority over us. And Lord, these were difficult days when Paul wrote to the Romans, to Christians who were under that kind of government. Lord, uh, we know that it was difficult days in Peter's day. Lord, the people uh, under his care and those who were reading the letter. And Father, we know that we are certainly uh, no less under governing authorities today. And Father, we pray for your divine wisdom in our hearts and lives. We pray for grace. We pray for mercy. Lord, just echoing in my mind is a young lady who said there is no vaccine for racism. That is not true. There is. It's called the gospel. The Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel can change anybody, anywhere, anytime. And Lord, we know what the Bible says in Galatians 3. There's neither Greek nor Scythian, barbarian, Lord, uh, white, black, Lord. uh, With the gospel, we are all united as brothers and sisters in the Lord. And, And Father, one of these days, the ultimate vaccine will come, and that's you returning from heaven. Uh, Lord, to take us home to be with you forever for New Jerusalem, Lord, that you're going to build. And Father, thank you for your love for us, and may you bless this country. Lord, uh, may we as a church family uh, turn back to you. Lord, uh, we need to point the finger at ourselves when it comes to disobedience and uh, delinquency and complacency and, and Lord, uh, presumptuousness. God, may we repent of all of them. And may we turn to you, the God who controls all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, as we think about end times, as we pray about the country, um, what do you hear a lot in the news? You know, the the economy is getting better. uh, uh, Prosperity is returning. We have to be very careful. This was a warning. Uh, back in the Old Testament times. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And in 20th century, 21st century United States, we have to have the same, uh, as Christians, we have to have the same mindset. Amen? Some trust in the stock market, some trust in their portfolio, but we trust in the Lord our God. Amen? And, uh, and so we have to keep that in mind. This song reminds us of that so very well. My worth is not in what I own. My worth is not in what I own. Not strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. 
it carefully. Two wonders here I must confess, my worth and my unworthiness. My value fixed, my ransom paid at the cross. And for that we rejoice. Oh, I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure. in him no
size there are those among us it just has to be and we would say in our heart Lord I am not fully prepared I am not fully ready there is there will be some degree of, of embarrassment if I were to see you face to face today 
But that does not have to be. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us every sin. Amen? So let's just bow before the Lord and know that we are ready for that beautiful day. Amen. In a Lifeway research article entitled, Pastors, the End of the World is Complicated, it reported that most Protestants believe that Jesus Christ will return in the future. I'm glad they do, right? <clears throat> Just think about that article title again, Pastors, the End of the World is Complicated. Let your mind focus upon those words because few people agreed in the survey what the details of the apocalypse will be. What will this look like? <clears throat> a couple of things to think about. A third of America's Protestant pastors expect Christians to be raptured. A third of America's Protestants taken up in the sky to meet the Lord at or as the end times begin. About a half think a false messiah known as the Antichrist will appear sometime in the future. A surprising number think the Antichrist has already been here or isn't on his way at all. About half, 49%, say the Antichrist is a figure who will actually rise in the future. Others say there is no individual Antichrist, 12%. Some say he's merely a personification of evil, 14%. Uh, or an institution, 7% believe that. 6% say the Antichrist has already been here. Interesting. Baptists, 75%, and Pentecostals, 83%, are most likely to see a future Antichrist. Lutherans, 29%, Methodists, 28%, and Presbyterian pastors, 29%, or 31%, are more likely to see the Antichrist in the Scripture as a personification of evil, not an actual person. Education also plays a role in how pastors see the Antichrist. Believe it or not, two-thirds of those who have no college degree, 68%, or a bachelor's degree, 63%, believe in a future Antichrist. But fewer than half of those with a master's degree, 39%, or a doctorate, 49%, hold to that view. Now, do you guys agree that the end of the world is complicated? Now, just think about how many pastors. Now, these are not just lay people, but pastors have this many varying uh, understandings of it. <clears throat> I supply this for you because the closing part of Daniel 11, and then the pickup in chapter 12 in the book of Daniel, is often seen as the subject matter and what's actually going to transpire at the end of the world. Now, what I want to do today is read the text for you. And then uh, we're going to break this down probably into one or two, maybe three sermons before we're done with chapter 12. We're getting close to landing the plane, right? And be praying about our study in Ephesians because we're going to hit it uh, in the fall. But we're about to finish here, okay? But I just want you to agree as a church that it's complicated. 
This is not easy, this subject matter. As a matter of fact, beginning in verse 36, most scholars believe that there's a transition. Now, it's not a, it's not a clear-cut transition. It would be very easy to say that we're just dealing with Antiochus Epiphanes still because we know in reality that's what's going on for sure. 30, in 29 down through uh, 33, about what actually happened around A.D. 168, something like that, when Antiochus Epiphanes uh, erects the statue of Zeus, puts pig blood on the altar. We know that that took place. But when you get to verse 36, some scholars, many scholars believe there is some type of transition to another king beginning in verse 36. Are you ready? Y'all ready to have fun, right? All right, verse 36. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished. For what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these. A God whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the end of the time... The king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver and all the precious things of Egypt. And the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatal tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. At this time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of our people, of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. Wow, don't you wish you were preaching this morning? What a text of scripture. Well, again, consensus is... That most scholars, though the vision addresses the situation with Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, believe that there's a transition. But I want to remind you that it is possible 
that we're still continuing with Antiochus Epiphanes. Why? Because he certainly did what it pleased him to do, right? Uh, We know this. As a matter of fact, that's been true of all the kings that have stood against the Lord in the book of Daniel. Uh, He actually nicknames himself Epiphanes, which means God made manifest. So he, in fact, believed that he was a god. History reports that he did abandon the god of his fathers. They worshipped Apollo, and he showed no regard for the one desired by women. Again, he goes to, to, to Zeus. When it says, no regard to the one desired by women, it could be a reference to the worship of the god Adonis, which was common in Egypt. He did this in favor of the worship of Zeus, a god who embodied military strength. So you can certainly see some of these principles in the text that we're reading that it could be Antiochus Epiphanes. As Ian Dugid points out, yet as the same, at the same time the passage seems to be speaking of a king who is larger and more ultimate in version than Antiochus. Now again, I don't think there's a very clear shift that marks a transition. Uh, one historical note to point out is that Antiochus did not die between the sea and Jerusalem after a grand successful assault of Egypt. And it appears that whoever this king is, finally at the end, will die in this particular place. But that was not true historically historically of Antiochus Epiphanes. Therefore, it seems to me, I'm a little shaky saying that, right? It seems to me that we're still looking at this point in Daniel's writing at a greater fulfillment of a figure that looks like much like Antiochus Epiphanes. And again, understand, all of these kings have looked like this in in many, many, many ways, right? Before the Lord put Nebuchadnezzar out in the field for seven years, he certainly looked exactly. Think about what he did to the temple of the Lord. Uh, So we know that Matthew 24 anticipates a dual fulfillment of prophecy, don't we? Jesus is standing there and he reminds them That not one stone will be left upon another. And that happens probably 35 years after Jesus says that. But this also protracted out when he says there's going to come a future abomination of desolation. So dual predictive prophecy is all in the Bible. So we could be telescoping here. And you're looking through the lenses of Antiochus Epiphanes. But it is definitely trajected out to a future Antichrist. Okay? There is another Antiochus-like figure that parallels 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 12. We'll read that next week. Because what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you today a historical uh, account that actually could be this king. And next week, I'm going to preach it like it possibly could be the Antichrist. Are you all ready? And if you don't like either explanation, we can arm wrestle when the service is over. All right? Because whether you believe it or not, you don't know. How things are going to happen in the end. You just don't. So if you will remember, I hold to the understanding in the book of Daniel that 490 years ends with the destruction of Jerusalem and the inauguration of the fifth kingdom that is clearly given in Daniel, which is the kingdom of the Messiah. Okay? So after, during the destruction of Jerusalem, remember Jesus had already been on the face of the earth at that particular time. And the king, his kingdom is already spreading across the world through the pronouncement of the gospel. So there has been a clear five-kingdom presentation in the book of Daniel. So when you get to verse 36, should we assume 
that we immediately jump from the Greek empire all the way to the end times. If we do that, then which empire have we skipped over? Rome. Okay? And that's what most dispensationalists do and are total futuristic people that read this. How do you take into account the actual Roman Empire? Because Daniel has been real succinct in all of these. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greek, Rome, Empire of the Kingdom of the Son of God. So does history offer another option of who this Antiochus-type Antichrist could be? I'm glad you asked. Some believe, again, that it was just the Roman Empire itself. Many scholars during the Reformation believed that when you get to verse 36, it's simply talking about the Roman Empire. Because king, at times, even in the book of Daniel, can stand for a kingdom. So that could be the case. So therefore, Antiochus' persecution, if we're holding this line, is a persecution that climaxes in verses 32 through 35 of Daniel 11. So it takes us right up to the end in the next verses to the wicked schemes and destruction to the Maccabean revolt which actually purges the people of God. So you're looking at a gap between 165 AD all the way over to 70 AD if that in fact a 70 I'm I'm sorry 167 BC all the way around to around 70 AD. Again, that moves you past the life of Christ and the gospel is moving uh, life, death, burial, and resurrection, of course. And the gospel is being uh, preached to the ends of the earth. Okay? So, verse 36 begins very vaguely. It's my suggestion that there is some kind of shift here. But I think you're shifting into the Roman Empire. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be a Roman king. Right? Does it have to necessarily be a Roman king? Well, there are some in here for sure. Uh, I think mentioned, but not necessarily the very first one that's mentioned in verse 36. And the king shall do as he wills. So in verses 36 through 37, we have this self-exalting king. Daniel says he does what pleases him. And I can't, I can't stress this enough. In Persia it was the same. In Greece it was the same. And Antiochus was the very same. They were self-exalting kings. He magnifies himself with incredible prosperity. And Antiochus does this in chapter 8. But again, uh, I'm suggesting that verse 37 goes right into the fourth king, verse 36, right into the fourth kingdom. Then it says, indignation is finished. And that goes back to Daniel 9, 26. Remember when we unpacked uh, the abomination of desolation, that most difficult text. So it says in verse 37 that he will show no regard to the gods of his fathers. Now, it says in this text that I read in the ESV... God of gods. Did you know that 60 times in the Old Testament that phrase is used? And every time it is used, it refers to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I think that is telling. They use the plural form gods here, small g. But I think the translation should be God of our fathers. And what does that mean to us? And again, this is all conjecture because it's difficult. It could certainly mean that this particular king is in fact a Jew. The God of our fathers. So the text says to the one beloved by women. And this is kind of ambiguous, right? He'll have no regard, no desire for women. We'll come back to that in a few moments. Then it says he will pay no attention to any other God. 
This means that this guy is ultimately an irreligious person. He magnifies himself above all. So what we have in 36 through 37 is the self-exalting king who has many similarities. If he's not Antiochus, he has many similarities to Antiochus and many other rotten tyrants that had come before him. Who is this self-willed king? Well, I think there's a good chance that it is the self-appointed Jewish king, John of Jaskalia. And I know what some of you are thinking. Who in the world is this? Because this guy will not be in your study notes. But I'm not surprised that he's not in your study notes. He actually led a Jewish insurgent against Rome from 66 to 70 A.D. Now, when was, when was Jerusalem destroyed? 70 A.D. Now, I know you're thinking at this point, you've never heard of this guy. But if you would have lived, and he also has alias names, which were Hebrew, which we're not going to try to pronounce, okay? But if you would have lived in the first century, you would have had no doubt who this guy was. As a matter of fact, Josephus tells us all about him. In book 4, Josephus, in his work, chapter, book 4, chapter 3, with the wars of the Jews, then you will hear and read. You can go back today, type that in, and you can read all about this guy. Okay? Now, Josephus tells us that John aspired to despotic power among the Jews. And then he was responsible for actually murdering the high priest in 66 A.D. And actually took himself upon himself the title Sovereign Monarch. Josephus gives us a high amount of information about him. He goes into the temple. He takes all the temple vessels. This sound familiar? He takes the temple oil. He takes the temple wine. And he takes gifts given to the Jewish people by the Romans. Turns right around and uses them the same way that Nebuchadnezzar did and, and Belshazzar. He used the sacred vessels, just like they did in Daniel 4 and Daniel 5. He was very sacrilegious, very irreligious. And he was a blasphemous Jew. He exalted himself against the God of heaven. What about no desire for women? What does this mean? Well, Josephus tells us that on one particular time, John was fleeing from the Romans and he leaves all of the women behind to die. Certainly, historically, that could fit with what's going on. He was frequently on the run from the Romans and was notorious for leaving the women and children behind. Let's ratchet it up a little more about this guy. He actually allowed some of the men of his own religious sect to rape the women in Jerusalem. He allowed them to practice open and blatant homosexuality. Josephus says that, that their inclination to plunder was insatiable. The mur they murdered the men. They didn't agree with them. They abused the women. And it was like a sport to them. This was Jewish on Jewish violence. They indulged themselves with feminine wantonness. They actually besmeared all of their faces with ointments and hand paint under their eyes. The perversion of these men under John of Giscalia was virtually indescribable. They imitated the lust of women. They defiled the entire community with impure actions. Verse 36, 38 through 39 talks about the king will honor fortresses. Well, what could that mean? Well, regardless of your interpretation, this king is, they almost all scholars agree that this is the worship of military power. Okay? A god of fortresses. In other words, whether this is the Antichrist or Antiochus Epiphanes or John, 
no matter what, all scholars agree that there's a demonic force moving behind. Did we not learn this, right, in Daniel 10? That demonic power was behind it, but it was the God of military power. John ends up turning the temple into a civil war zone. Get the picture now. Uh, He actually takes the very temple of God in Jerusalem. And he makes it into a military fortress. Several years before that, Vespasian and Titus actually get... Before Vespasian and Titus actually get to Jerusalem, there were three insurgent factions going on in Jerusalem. Uh, I, when I look at our world, it concerns me about this kind of thing. What about internal civil war, civil war? You do understand that this was going on in Jerusalem before the Romans ever got there. They were already fighting among themselves. Civil war dominated the horizon among the Jews for several years before Rome ever knocked one stone off the other. There were two factions that tried to force John out of the temple. Titus tells Gascalia that if you'll surrender, I'll spare the temple and then in turn allow sacrifices to restart. But John would offer bribes of land. And he would offer whatever it took to get the men to stay with him. He rejected Titus's offer. And John and Simon, two of the insurgents in the city of Jerusalem... Joined together, and Daniel tells us a remarkable thing when you get to verses 40 through 45. We have the king of the south and the king of the north that are mentioned. I think these are the appointed, this is the appointed time events that Daniel is referencing in Daniel 9, uh, 26 through 27, which ends up being the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, folks, from our perspective, when we look back on this, it doesn't mean a whole lot to you. Kingdoms rise and fall. But folks, do you understand how devastating it would have been for the people of God to lose their entire city and temple? Do y'all realize how difficult? And, and what when Daniel was prophesying is this, it would have certainly been days of indignation and terrible things happening to the people. By end time events, I'm not referring to the events that will take place right before the second coming of Christ. I think these events took place right before the coming, first coming of the Son of God. So, the king of the south uh, at this time would be Tiberius. Y'all want to stop and do a commercial break? I told you a long time ago, chapter 11 is difficult, but preach it we must. Okay? So, Tiberius is in the south, and Nero had appointed him as ruler of Egypt. The king of the north is a reference to Vespasian along with his son Titus, with whom, whom Nero had placed over Judea as ruler. He says that Edom and Moab and Ammon were spared. You know what we know today? Under Vespasian's military advances, these three areas were spared. Then there's the interesting comment that the land of Egypt was not a place of deliverance. What does that mean? Well, we know that when nations invaded Palestine, what did they actually do? Jews would oftentimes escape to Egypt. They would flee there. Vespasian actually will cut off the route to Egypt. Beginning in verse 43, it chronicles all the spoils that Vespasian and Titus would take. When Vespasian is in Egypt, he ends up becoming the emperor of the Roman Empire. And he appoints his son Titus as the general over the Roman armies. Who is the general that actually comes down on finally when the destruction of the temple takes place? It is Titus. We know this from history. So, Vespasian hears a rumor from the east at this point that it disturbs him. He then turns and destroys and annihilates many. And this is probably the bloodshed 
and the actual rebellion from John of Giscalia that actually takes place in Jerusalem at this particular time. And we also learn from another Roman historian that there were tents set up on the Mount of Olives. When it says palatal tents, these were certainly set up on the Mount of Olives during this particular time frame. Okay? Now, on the inside of the city, there's rape and there's pillage and there's violence that is Jew against Jew. And then the Jews realize, oh my goodness, we're in deep trouble. We're surrounded at every corner of, of our land. And John and Simon, again, join forces. They reject Titus. They off, uh, they're, wanting, they, they're wanting Pax Ramana. What is that? They're wanting peace, right? The Romans are crying peace. If you just do this, we'll let you keep doing your sacrifices. But they would not do this. So we always think of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple as a Roman activity. I want to remind you, it was not. The Jewish insurgents actually began burning the temple before the Romans ever got there. We know this from history. The Romans break through the city walls, surround the temple. Titus captures both John and Simon. They both are executed, and the tyranny ends. And the Romans would continue what the Jews had started. Did you know history teaches us that they figured out that there was gold in between every one of the stones, like stacked up here? So why do you think they took every stone and did not allow a single one to be laid upon another? Because they got the gold out of it. But Gascalia was responsible, according to Josephus, for so much bloodshed. He actually holds this one person responsible for the destruction of the temple. Now, I know we're putting weight on a historian. We're not putting the weight on inspired scripture. But my point of giving you this is just to tell you that it's not clear and simple. It's not just one of those things where we say, oh, wow. We pick up reading in verse 36. That has to be the Antichrist. No, it doesn't. Is there one coming in the future? You better believe it. But look, there's something to interpreting the Word of God. And you know me well enough to know that we're not just going to skip over the Old Testament and run to the New if there's not complete understanding in the New of what was said in the Old. Right? There are times when we know clearly. But in order to be an expositor and know what the Bible says, it's very important to, to actually view a text within its historical context. So, again, if you don't think it's John of Giscalia, that's okay. We can arm wrestle over it. No big deal, all right, because it certainly could be the Antichrist. Now, at this point, we have a chapter division, right? That's chapter 12. Look at this. And at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. Now, if you're tracking with me, the way I view this is when you get to chapter 12, we're speaking of the inauguration of the Messiah's kingdom. Okay? Now take your copy of the Word of God and flip over to Revelation chapter 12. You've got to listen fast. I only have a few minutes before we have to dismiss and bring in the new crowd, right? <clears throat> listen to chapter 12 of the book of Revelation. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. On his head, heads, seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. What child is that? The Son of God. 
She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught, caught up to God. What's that called? The ascension. And the woman fled into the wilderness. Who's that? You might argue Israel. I would argue the church. <clears throat> where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for. Don't you love these days? How long is this? Three and a half years? Right? How long was the earthly ministry of Christ? Okay. Verse 7. Now war arose in heaven. Are y'all looking at the text? Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. So, what are we dealing with 12.1? At that time shall arise Michael. I think, in my humble opinion, right, what actually is described in Daniel 12 is taking place in Revelation 12. Okay? And I think this is... This is after the birth and ascension of Christ. And this is the all-out onslaught of the demons of hell and Satan to stop the progress of the gospel of Jesus Christ. No amens? You do know whether you believe that or not, that's what's happening in the world. Right? You, you do understand that nationally there's something way bigger than just Democrats and Republicans. Don't be ignorant. Uh, the enemy hates Christ and his church. He hates Christ and the church. That is clear from the Word of God. So this language should be familiar for us because it's given in Mark 13, 19 and Luke 21, 23. So I think this is a reference to the destruction of Jerusalem. Josephus says there was over 1.1 million people who died. Now, could that be an exaggeration? I don't know. But Matthew 24, 15, listen to this. Matthew 24, 15. <clears throat> the Bible says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down and take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn... Uh, field not turn back to take his cloak. You've read this. This is remarkable. Jewish Christians living in Jerusalem actually took these words seriously and they fled to the mountains of Pella and tens of thousands of believers were spared from the destruction of Titus. Again, chapter 12 verse 2, the Bible says, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Some of us would say, okay, there it is. There's no way this could have been what Jesus is talking about because we're talking about the judgment of the righteous and the wicked. Well, that's true, it could be. But the idea is simply that those who are faithful to death will be raised. No matter when you live. Don't y'all believe this? Isn't it amazing that in the book of Daniel... We have proof of the resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous given to us way back in the book of Daniel. I find that fascinating. It would be awesome. You know, you also do know that Job believed in the resurrection because Job said, In my flesh I shall see God. Woo! Isn't that good? And perhaps Job was the oldest book of the Bible written. And just think about that for a moment. In my flesh. I shall see God. So no matter how you view this text, 
Daniel's eschatological insight into the resurrection of the righteous and the wicked is phenomenal. Now in verse 3, these are the ones who have, been, have faith in God and they're faithful to God. We talked about this last week, didn't we? Those who know their God will stand firm and take action. These people understand the word of the Lord. They know how it applies to life and they respond to the challenges of life by faith. And Daniel says they will shine like stars. What I see in 1 through 3 of chapter 12 is the inauguration of the Messiah's kingdom. 36 through 45 is the destruction of Jerusalem through the self-exalting John, Jew, Jewish king John of Jescalia. And then 12, 1 through 3 is the inauguration of the Messiah's kingdom. Are we still friends? Right? Some things aren't worth fighting about, folks. And prophetic, apocalyptic, eschatological insight is not worth fighting over. You know, one of my professors stood up in our New Testament class one day and he, he said, when I was young, my hair was way out to here. He was hilarious. Talked about all the things he did as a kid and all this kind of stuff. But anyway, Dr. David Lanier, one of my favorite uh, New Testament professors, he said to us one time, he said, you need to you guacamole is, a, is an, an additive, right? You Spice up your food, you add it to things to, to make food better. And occasionally when we go to Guatemala, I will eat guacamole, good stuff, right? But I'm telling you, folks, if you're a fool if guacamole, guacamole is all you ever eat, right? Well, you need to treat eschatology like guacamole. It spices up your Christian life. It encourages you to be faithful to the Lord. We know full well we have to agree on this particular thing, that Jesus Christ is coming again. That there is going to be an Antichrist that's going to come in the future. The beast and the Antichrist. And we know full well that the days are going to get more difficult than they ever have in the history of the world before the Lord Jesus comes back. And I want to remind you, our world cannot be fixed. It will not be fixed by a constitution. There is no way you can fix our... As a matter of fact, you can't fix your own problem. Because you're dead, doomed, disobedient, and dead is dead. Unless the gospel of Jesus Christ awakens you and saves your soul, you can't fix your human problem. Same is true for end-time events. We, this world, cannot be fixed, but Jesus Christ can fix it, right? We can't fix it, but he can. Justification by faith is worth fighting for. We believe that you're saved by grace through faith, and justified means even though you remain a sinner before God, you're justified by Jesus Christ and pronounced innocent. Your sins are forgiven past, present, and future. Woo! Right? Now, justification is worth fighting for. The bodily resurrection of Jesus is worth fighting for, right? The Bible says he arose bodily, right? That's worth fighting about. The gospel is worth fighting about. If a man comes, Paul says, and he preaches another gospel, let him be anathematized. There's only one gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But again, prophetic, eschatological detail, in my opinion, is not worth fighting about. I think this may be the best way to understand the text historically, but it's not worth fighting about. Okay, here's your point. There will always be times of distress. Y'all agree with that? Some of you are thinking, why don't you just say that and end the sermon? <laughs> but folks, just think about this. Over and over, as history is unfolding, there's going to be trials and there's going to be tribulation. There will always be oppression on the people of God. Just think about this for a moment. With, with militant Muslims 
who are killing Christians almost daily in our world. Now we're, we're sitting in America and other than uh, September 11, 2001, it didn't really hit home, did it? But across the world, this is happening every single day. Even Christians that are Syrians are being slaughtered because they know Christ. What did Jesus tell us? Expect this to happen. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work in the world right now. It's at work right now. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which forces are, which his forces are being waged against the people of God. Again, Revelation 12 makes this clear. But we also need to remember that based on this passage and the others, that is, in fact, Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he shall deliver his people. And that's a wonderful blessing. Even the ones who are martyred for the faith, he's going to deliver them as well. On the last day, he will vindicate his people as he raises them from the dead. The very one who laid down his life for us. The Lord Jesus Christ and conquered death and the grave. He's the first fruits and we too shall come forth from the grave. Hallelujah. For the rest, if you're alive and remain right now, you're called by God to shine in this world like stars. In a very dark world. These are days of distress. Uh, make no mistake about it. But what does God call the people of God to be? You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. And here's the reality. You can live your life as a dim bulb in the kingdom of God. And you can take that however you want to today. Or you can be like John the Baptist. Who was a burning and shining light. Who made a difference in the world. In many ways, that is the prophecy given to us in this text. We are called by Almighty God to be faithful. We are called by God to persevere. And there will always be those among quote-unquote professing believers that want to compromise, pare down the corners. Why? We want our faith to be more convenient. We want our faith to be more comfortable. And we want it to be more relevant to the world. There are always those, however, who will shine in the darkness. And those are going to be the ones raised into everlasting glory. Wake up, people. Wake up. Your peace will not be established nor preserved through a constitution. Be a shining star in a perverse and crooked generation. Amen? All right. God bless us. Father, you are sovereign over all. And Lord, we track through a lot of history today. Lord, I get that. I know it. But Lord, your word on everything it touches is infallible. We wish we still had... Uh, in this passage, all the names on the jerseys and the teams that are playing, north, south, this king, that king, is complicated. But when we look back in history, Lord, we can see how it, messaged, it does mesh with your word in the sense that you know all things. Even two to three hundred years before any of these events take place, before the destruction of Jerusalem, you said it, Lord God, it would take place. And Jesus even said, not a stone will be left upon another. Lord God, we thank you for the authority of your word. And God, help us all. We would certainly measure what we're facing in our country as times of distress. And Lord, my prayer is that if we're persecuted, we're persecuted because of what we believe about the word, about Christ, about justification, 
about the exclusivity of Christ being the only way to salvation. Lord, let us not be persecuted for doing evil. Lord, let us do what is right in the face of this world. Lord, thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in the end, Lord, help everyone in the sound of my voice realize that there will be a future resurrection. And what an awesome resurrection of the body that will be for those who know you. But Lord, for those who are lost, it's a resurrection unto final judgment. Being placed in a place called hell. God, if there's anyone under the sound of my voice that's lost, may just that reminder that uh, there's no such thing as annihilationism. Our souls are going to live somewhere forever, heaven or hell. Let that be a reminder to people to turn to Christ and trust him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Brother David? Well, amen. Let me remind you that uh, our pastor will always be... uh, out there in the uh, North Fellowship Hall, if you need any any spiritual uh, discussion, any help, he'll be happy to, to talk to you. Also, uh, let me say this. Since we've moved our uh, late service to 1045, we're a little bit more packed, okay, uh, in the hallway. And so, uh, you know, one of the markers of a healthy church, there are hundreds, but one of them are how, how much time congregations linger and fellowship after a service. And you guys do that a lot. That's, that's awesome. We're just asking you not to do it in the main hallway and in the West Hall, okay? Uh, go, go to the commons. Uh, you know, if it's comfortable outside, it's probably not today. I think it's raining. You know, go outside, whatever. But if, you, if we can keep that uh, main hallway clear so, so traffic doesn't get congested, especially in these COVID days, right? So please help us out with that, okay? The ushers will dismiss you as we, uh, as we travel out, okay? God bless. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see And I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace When he takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land What a day, glorious day that will be